Hello and welcome to the very special edition of Right in the Schoolies. I'm your host, Mr. James, and today we're celebrating someone's birthday, their 99th birthday to be precise. And while he's not actually here to help see it in, having died back in 1985, it is of course the birthday of the legendary poet, the Hull Hermit, Mr. Philip Larkin. I first began studying Larkin back during my A-levels, thanks to the marvellous Mr. Peter Winfield at Peter Simmons College, Winchester. It was to become an interesting relationship with his poetry throughout probably the rest of my life so far. Philip Larkin's poetry was the very first that began to really, really raise the hairs on the back of my neck. And obviously there are far more literary and classic works that I can say have done the same since. But I suppose that Larkin opened a door, a very scary, myopic sort of door in my teenager's sort of underdeveloped brain. What's always good about going back to a good set of poems is how they have a different resonance to you as you get older and you experience more things. So I'm going to read a couple of his, and I'm going to give a little preamble to each one, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about why I found them so interesting. But this is not a lecture, this is not a lesson. I am on holiday. And so this is something I wish I had the chance to do in my day job, which is just to teach poetry for the love of it and nothing more. Now this first poem, published on the 24th of April, 1968, in the High Windows collection, was one of the first ones I remember reading. We studied High Windows when I was at A-level, and it, it made me want to pick up other collections, of course, including the famous Wits and Weddings collection. But I read this poem aloud. We were asked to take a poem and read it aloud, and I remember this was mine. And I took it away, and I practiced a couple of times. And at the time, I wasn't all that sure about it. But there's something about it now that really, really speaks to me. And given that I am only a mere 33 summers old, I do still find this disconnect between being older and being younger something that is a continual refrain in Larkin's poetry. One thing that I felt quite recently as I teach obviously A-level students now myself, is that at the time, of course, you don't think of being young. It's something that is just there and it's taken for granted. But I believe that this poem really captures something towards the end of it, and it's in your unguarded moments when you are not really fully awake, and yet not quite in the world of dreams, that this can really sort of come home. And this poem is called Sad Steps Groping back to bed after a piss I part thick curtains And am startled by the rapid clouds The moon's cleanliness Four o'clock Wedge-shadowed gardens lie under a cavernous A wind-picked sky there's something laughable about this. The way the moon dashes through clouds that blow loosely as cannon smoke to stand apart. Stone-coloured light sharpening the roofs below. High and preposterous and separate 
Lozenge of love. Medallion of art. Oh, wolves of memory. Immensements. No. One shivers slightly, looking up there. The hardness, and the brightness, and the plain, far-reaching singleness of that wide stare is a reminder of the strength and pain of being young, that it can't come again, but is for others undiminished somewhere. Now this poem is probably the most Larkin-esque of all of his poems, and is widely seen as one of his very, very best. And this poem is by far the most distressing, the most offensive to all areas of your sort of well-being. It's the poetic equivalent of walking round a house and shutting out every single bit of light that could possibly get in. But with that, there's something about it that I think is just irresistible. And this poem needs no more introduction than this, and this poem's name is or bard. I work all day and get half drunk at night. Waking at four to soundless dark, I stare. In time the curtain edges will grow light. Till then I see what's really always there. Unresting death, a whole day nearer now. Making all thought impossible that how and where and when I shall myself die arid interrogation, yet the dread of dying and being dead flashes afresh to hold and horrify. The mind blanks at the glare, not in remorse, the good not done, the love not given, time torn off unused, nor wretchedly because an only life can take so long to climb clear of its wrong beginnings, and may never but at the total emptiness forever, the sure extinction that we travel to and shall be lost in always, not to be here, not to be anywhere. And soon, nothing more terrible, nothing more true. This is a special way of being afraid. No trick dispels. Religion used to try, that vast, moth-eaten, musical brocade created to pretend we never die, and spacious stuff that says, no rational being can fear a thing it will not feel, not seeing that this is what we fear. No sight, no sound, no touch, or taste, or smell, nothing to think with, nothing to love, or link with, the anaesthetic from which none come round. And so it stays, just on the edge of vision. A small unfocused blur, a standing chill that slows each impulse down to indecision. Most things may never happen, this one will. And realisation of it rages out in furnace fear when we are caught without people or drink. Courage is no good. It means not scaring others. Being brave lets no one off the grave. Death is no different whined at than withstood. Slowly, light strengthens and the room takes shape. It stands plain as a wardrobe. What we know 
have always known, know that we can't escape, yet can't accept. One side will have to go. Meanwhile, telephones crouch, getting ready to ring in locked-up offices, and all the uncaring, intricate, rented world begins to rouse. The sky is white as clay, with no sun. Work has to be done. Postmen, like doctors, go from house to house. And finally, something to hopefully provide a bit of an antidote to that real dose of horror and death. It's a poem about two people buried in a cathedral. No, it is, but it's um, probably the closest that we get to real tenderness from Larkin. And I love this poem. I think it's got such a beautiful, beautiful central image. And of course, everything about him his cynicism, his his sort of acid wit means that he finds it, I think, very difficult to put stuff down that could be seen as positive without it coming across as trite or inane. And to be honest, the final line of this poem, which I absolutely think has been taken out of context on more than one occasion, it's very nearly not a nice ending. And actually, like most good things in life, it isn't all good. And it isn't all bad, but certainly when I go around old cathedrals, and I am a big fan despite being a a hardcore atheist, I do find myself wandering around and looking at these sort of stone habits of people lying side by side, knowing, of course, that underneath is just dusty bones. There's just something very moving about the concept of what people remember versus what actually is there. And I think it if nothing else, talks about the power of memory. And certainly if you've ever lost somebody, you know that nothing can ever take away the memory that you have of them. And of course, Larkin draws this out to its natural conclusion, which is what happens when there are no people left to remember you because they're no longer there either. This poem is called An Arundel Tomb. And a short little piece of information. You can find these people the Earl and Countess, and and actually see this, complete with the little dogs, if you go to Chichester Cathedral, I believe. An Arundel Tomb. Side by side, their faces blurred, the Earl and Countess lie in stone, their proper habits, vaguely shown, as jointed armour, stiffened pleat, and that faint hint of the absurd, the little dogs under their feet. Such plainness of the pre-baroque hardly involves the eye, until it meets his left-hand gauntlet, still clasped empty in the other, and one sees with a sharp, tender shock his hand withdrawn, holding her hand. They would not think to lie so long. Such faithfulness in effigy was just a detail friends would see. A sculptor's sweet, commissioned grace, thrown off in helping to prolong the Latin names around the base. They would not guess how early in their supine stationary voyage the air would change to soundless damage, turn the old tenantry away, 
how soon succeeding eyes begin to look, not read. Rigidly, they persisted, linked through lengths and breadths of time. Snow fell, undated. Light each summer thronged the glass. A bright litter of bird calls strewed the same bone-riddled ground. And up the paths, the endless altered people came, washing at their identity. Now, helpless in the hollow of an unarmorial age, they trough of smoke in slow suspended skeins above their scrap of history. Only an attitude remains. Time has transfigured them into untruth. The stone fidelity they hardly meant has come to be their final blazon. And to prove our almost instinct, almost true, what will survive of us is love. And if you like what you've heard today in regards to Philip Larkin and his poetry, do feel free to follow the Tiny and All That Air podcast, which is the official Philip Larkin Society podcast. A marvellous bit of work. They feature some far more intelligent and erudite guests than me, but I have been on it once or twice. If you are really keen, consider joining the Philip Larkin Society, and you get all sorts of stuff, including a gorgeous booklet, which you get sent biannually, and... If you wish to toast Philip Larkin today on his birthday, pour yourself a nice large gin and tonic and raise it this evening. They do fuck you up, though, your mum and dad.